Well, good morning. It is a privilege to be with you all this morning. And it was a huge privilege to be with the students at camp. I thoroughly enjoyed my time. As I told them, uh, there's something special in that youth group. I was a youth pastor for many years, and you know when there's something special going on, there definitely is. So uh, it was a wonderful time, spending time getting to know Pastor Paul, Pastor Samuel, all the leaders, and uh, just talking with many of the students. They were so warm with me, and uh, I just so appreciated that. And uh, also some fun time with the Iversons yesterday. That was a good time. So uh, I'm thankful to be here with you all and just be a part of what the Lord's doing among you. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to uh, the book of Titus this morning. Titus chapter 3. Titus 3, and we're interested this morning in verses 1 uh, down through verse 8. And I realize that verses 4 to 7 are just such a theologically rich, packed uh, section. And we're not going to dive super deep into those. I want to kind of look at the broader context this morning with you. But let's just read the passage. Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. There the Apostle Paul says to Titus, "...remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient." to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But... When the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life, This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God may be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Well, I don't have to tell you that we're living in troubled times in our nation. You all have had a front row seat to all of that. Uh, The COVID-19 pandemic, the polarizing political climate that was precipitated by a whole host of issues has provided the perfect storm for the fruits of dangerous ideologies and movements that have been pushing their way into our culture for decades to finally sort of tip the scales and bring in a flood of godlessness in our society. You know, back in the 1970s, Uh, the great Christian thinker and apologist Francis Schaeffer evaluated the rise and decline of Western culture in kind of a broad-brush manner. It's been critiqued a little bit. Maybe it was a little too broad-brush at times, but overall correct, I believe. And he projected that things would only get worse for us. That was back in the 70s. He titled the book, which was produced as a ten-part video series, How Should We Then Live? And nearly four decades later, we're beginning to experience many of the things that Schaefer said would come to be. And Christians are asking that question again as we face them. How should we 
then live. Some are grabbing hold of those worldly ideologies that are floating around and dressing them up in gospel garb. We dare not do that. Some are looking all sorts of places for answers, but you know, we need not look any further than the scriptures for the answer to that question, how should we then live? In fact, we really need not look any further than this little letter right here in the passage that we just read. As bad as our society is becoming, we need to realize that the Greco-Roman world of the first century was certainly not any better. And in many respects, it was worse. In fact, the island of Crete where Titus was ministering was filled with a mixture of pagan philosophy and superstition, false teaching that was under the guise of Christianity, and there was rank, debauched character that was summed up by one of their own, as we're told in chapter 1, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. How would you like that to describe your culture by one of your own? So when we compare the context of 1st century Crete and 21st century America, there are really some striking similarities. And the ideologies and the immoralities of the world have always been there. And they've always been there not merely in a way that's different than our worldview that pushes back against us, but they're diametrically opposed to not only those ideologies that we hold dear, but to us ourselves. In fact, you remember the words of the Lord Jesus in John 15. He says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. The world hates you because you identify with me, Jesus said. And yet, the world is our mission field, isn't it? The world out there are the people that we've been called to reach. But because of their hostility to us, not only personally, but to the truths that we hold dear, that godless agenda that poses our entire worldview we have a tendency to not engage the world, but to withdraw. To go into what some have called the holy huddle. (laughs) We sort of huddle up. uh, We get as far away from that as we can. Uh, We we just try to, to draw back from the world instead of engaging it in love. We begin to give into that fleshly inclination to view the world as really our adversary rather than that mission field that we've been called to reach. And I fear that that temptation is only going to grow and grow and grow for Christians in this present present climate that we're in because things aren't getting any better. They just seem to keep getting worse. I mean, there was a spark of, of light with the overturning of Roe versus Wade, and yet you see even some professing Christians that are uh, not so excited about that. I don't, I don't understand that, by the way. Not even a little bit. Um, but we, we just see our culture moving forward, forward, forward into godliness. But you know, as I said, that temptation to withdraw from the world, to view those people out there as enemies that we need to disengage from is nothing new. Not at all. Uh, in fact, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in this passage, provides specific instructions regarding how we are to relate to that world. And I want you to notice that Paul prefaces these instructions by telling Titus to remind them. Remind them. 
That's interesting. Obviously, uh, these are things that the Christians in Crete already knew. Um, they'd probably been told them many times. And these are things we're going to talk about this morning that we know. And yet, they need to be reminded of them, and we need to be reminded of them. In fact, the longer I preach, the more I realize that preaching is to a large degree the ministry of reminding. <laughs> because we just say a lot of the same things over and over and over in different ways. Uh, but we just keep coming back to the truth because we so need to be reminded of it and to apply it to ourselves. So here in this passage, which as I said is, is laden with that theological richness, especially in verses 4-7, through seven, we're given three reminders that will help us to relate to a hostile world. Three reminders. The first one is that we need to remember what we're supposed to be. Remember what you're supposed to be. This entire letter of Titus is all about the truth that is transforming us. Look back in chapter 1 in the very first verse. Paul introduces himself as a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Then he says, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. Truth that accords with godliness. In other words, truth that produces godliness. It's truth that transforms us. Look at chapter 2 and verse 14. He says there that Christ Jesus gave Himself for us in order to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession. A people who are zealous for good deeds. And you see this idea of good deeds all throughout this book, don't you? Even in verse 8 that wraps up this section, that we need to be careful to engage in good deeds. If you look at chapter 2, in fact, if you're familiar with the book of Titus, you're probably most familiar with chapter 2. Um, we, we love Titus chapter 2 and verses 2 to 10 that are really focusing on relationships within the local church and how we're supposed to impact one another. But even in that section, it's laden with an evangelistic focus because Paul wants us to know that how we engage with one another represents Christ to the world. Just like Jesus said, how's the world going to know that you belong to me? Uh, you love one another. And so there's this transformative work within us and the world is watching us. Look in chapter 2, verse 5, where he urges the young women to devote themselves to their husband, their children, their home, so forth. And then he says, so that the Word of God would not be dishonored. That's a henna clause, a purpose clause. So that. Here's why you need to do this, ultimately, so that the Word of God is not going to be dishonored. Dishonored by who? Well, look at chapter 2, verse 8. He urges the young men, and Titus in particular, to be sound in conduct and speech, so that the opponent would be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Who's the opponent? The world. The detractors. And who are us? Those who follow Christ. Live in such a way that adorns the Gospel. And in fact, look at chapter 10 and verse 2. He commands slaves, or in our context, employees, to conduct themselves honorably toward their masters so that they would adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. I love that word adorn. It's the word that we use for cosmetics. 
Uh, it means to beautify, to make it attractive, to make the gospel beautiful by the way that we live. And so here in this section, in verses 1 and 2 of the passage, uh, Paul gives us uh, several commands about what we're supposed to be in order to do that in direct relation to the world. Chapter 2 was all about, here's how we need to deal with one another so that we have a good testimony to the world. Here in this portion, Paul is saying, here's how we're to deal directly with the world out there. And he gives us seven commands, really, but I'm going to lump them under four headings. First of all, I want you to note that in order to be what we're supposed to be, we need to be submissive. Be submissive. We need to have an attitude of submission as Christians to authority. Look at verse 15 of chapter 2. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. He's talking about the Word of God there, right? Uh, the Word of God stands over and above all of us. And so from the pulpit to the pew, we're all under the authority of the Word of God. Christ is Lord. This is His Word. We are to read His Word and obey His Word. And then, after that sweeping charge there, the first thing he tells Titus to remind them of is to be submissive to rulers and authorities. And then, lumped within that, to be obedient to those authorities. And so what we need as the people of God is an attitude of submission to the authorities that God has placed over us. And you remember in Romans 13, uh, verses 1-7, to it's clear that the authorities that be are ordained by God. Whether we like them or not, whether we agree with them or not, those authorities have been delegated that authority from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords for His sovereign purposes. And while it's right for us to be outraged at many things we see happening in our country, and while we should speak out against those things that are evil, that are uh, oftentimes pushed forward by those very people who are governing and ruling us, and do everything in our power to avert those kind of things, especially in the society in which we live, where we have the freedom to vote and we have the freedom to use our speech according to our First Amendment, I think that's still a thing. And while there may be times when we must refuse to obey an ordinance from the governing authorities because they're telling us to do something God forbids or forbidding us to do something God commands, in all of that, we must have an attitude of submission. Everything Paul is talking about is first and foremost heart issues. Because everything we do outwardly flows from the heart. So we can even... Uh, push back a bit, but we can do so with an attitude of submission. That's what the world needs to see. Because the world is pushing back against all authority. The world is shaking its fist at God and saying, you will not rule over us. In fact, I'm, I'm going to plug my ears and pretend like you don't even exist. Even though your knowledge is all around me and written on my heart. You see, the world wants to be autonomous. And rebellious. That's what characterized the false teachers, didn't it? In chapter 1. 
Verse 10, he says, there are many rebellious men who are windbags, empty talkers and deceivers, false teachers, worldly people. They are those who are rebels. Christians need to be different. We need to learn how to be submissive as much as we possibly can. And when it comes to those places where we must disobey, we can do that even with an attitude of submissiveness. Well, secondly, we need to be servants. Servants, notice that. Be ready for every good deed. And by the way, if you've ever wondered what is a good deed, we, we tend to think a good deed is like, you know, going on the mission field or serving at the soup kitchen or, you know, like doing these kind of things that are kind of big, surrendering your life to be a pastor or something. Uh, well, a good deed, according to Scripture, is actually any action that's born out of a heart that is being transformed by the power of the Spirit of God. So according to Titus 2, it's as simple as, you know, if we made some application there, it's as simple as a mother changing a dirty diaper for the glory of God with the right heart, right? And all the way to, you know, going and reaching those people on the mission field and everything in between. That's a good deed. And the focus of good deeds here is in relation not only to obedience to governing authorities, but it's really a willingness to serve anyone and everyone regardless of whether they're followers of Christ or not. I mean, we delight to serve one another, or at least we should, right? It's wonderful to serve brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, Our family just faced a crisis uh, with our young son in the last several weeks, and it's just been overwhelming to me to see how many people have displayed love to us. And that really is that tangible work of God in our lives. And it's wonderful. It's wonderful to serve one another and love one another, but when it comes to those people out there, sometimes it's not so wonderful, right? It's not easy to love our enemies. But here again, Paul is echoing that very command to serve anyone and everyone. And it's not a command to organize large social campaigns and so forth, even though there may be times when that's appropriate, times of crisis and so forth. But really what it is, it's the idea of us as individuals being sensitive to the needs of those around us and being willing to meet those needs, whatever they may be. Getting to know our neighbors and, you know, if they have a problem, hey, we're, we're there to serve. We want to help them, even if their lifestyle repulses us. It's often difficult to love in a tangible way, but when we do that, we give the world an example of what Jesus told us to do and what Jesus did. In fact, I'm always blown away when I think of John 13 and Jesus getting down and washing the dirty feet of his disciples. I mean, that's, that's a little too much for me, okay? Like washing anybody's feet, feet are gross, right? But it just blows me away even more when I think about the fact that one of those disciples whose feet Jesus watched, washed was his enemy. It was Judas Iscariot. He was still there. And Jesus washed Judas's stinky feet. Jesus said, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So when we have servant hearts towards people around us, we show them what Jesus is like. Well, thirdly, not only must we be submissive and be servants, but we must be self-controlled. Verse 2 gives a couple of negative commands 
which fall under the broader category of self-control that shows up numerous times in chapter 2. And we know that self-control is actually a fruit of the Spirit, right? Self-control. And and so uh, this is what he's talking about here, but he's talking about it particularly as it regards to our speech. To our speech. Notice what he says, malign no one. Malign no one. James says that we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. So Paul says, don't malign people. The idea is really, the the word is, is to blaspheme. Don't blaspheme anyone. And he's not talking about blaspheming God, he's talking about others. Don't speak wrongly about others don't slander them don't speak evil and we could think of this first and foremost when it comes to rulers can't we how easy is it for us to malign those rulers that we disagree with i mean it's common for me i'm from arizona okay you know and so it's common for me to see people who profess christ you know in one social media post you know blessing the name of jesus and then in the very next post blaspheming the ruler that they disagree with in some foul way or flagrant way. You know what James says about that? He says that with the tongue we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. shouldn't characterize a Christian. We should speak evil of no one. And of course, if we're talking about governing rulers, that's, that's to everyone. Speak evil of no one. Absolutely no one. It's unqualified. So we're to be self-controlled in speech. We're also to be self-controlled when it comes to our tempers. Notice we're to be prepared to obey the command to avoid quarreling. Avoid quarreling. In other words, we, we must do our best to avoid offending others needlessly. And this oftentimes goes back to our speech as well, because that's typically how we offend, right? And even when we speak the truth as Christians, oftentimes, you know, I, I hear people say things like, well, I just speak the truth. I just tell it like it is, right? <laughs> well, that's great. You know, and, and there's a time for boldness and courage and so forth. But sometimes, even when we're speaking the truth, we can be needlessly offensive. You know, the gospel itself is offensive. First Corinthians 1 tells us that clearly. The gospel is offensive because it, it tells us, you know, that, that there's nothing good in us, right? And, and that uh, we need Christ. We're helpless without Him. It's offensive. And, and so we realize that. But the issue is, is that we ought not to ever be the offense ourselves. To avoid offending others as much as possible. But what about when other people offend us? Because that's typically what happens in relation to the world, right? We're trying to just, you know, love others and do our best and then someone does something that's very offensive to us and so forth. Well, what do we do there? Well, Peter says... 1 Peter 3, verses 9-10, through Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. 
And again, this doesn't mean that we be doormats and never speak out against injustice and so forth. It simply means that we're to be more concerned about being peacemakers and for the sake of the Gospel than we are about our own personal rights. And you know what? We need to do a better job of that in the church, much less with the world. Never avenge yourself. Leave that to God, Paul says in Romans 12. And here's a verse that's just so helpful for me in just about every aspect of life. Romans 12.18 If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. In other words, you can't control what other people are going to do. You can't change anybody else's heart or action. But you can control you. And God says, as as much as lies with you, as much as depends upon you, take personal responsibility and you do what's right even if the other does wrong. You know what? If you apply that in a marriage, hmm, you got something to work with, don't you? How much more with the world? So when we're self-controlled in our speech and in the midst of conflict, again, we give an example of Christ's likeness to the world who Peter says committed no sin Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's Jesus. Let's be like Jesus, Paul says. Oh, we need to be submissive, servant, self-control. Finally, in this section, I want you to note that we need to be sweet-natured. Sweet-natured. Notice the command there. Be gentle, showing every consideration for all men. That word translated gentle is a rich word. It's what I like to call a lexical lasagna. It's just like layer upon layer of rich meaning. Uh, It could be translated in a variety of ways, like yielding or kind or courteous or gracious or humble. And sometimes it is translated that way in the New Testament in various places and contexts. The word literally means not insisting on every right of letter of law or custom. Not insisting upon being right about everything. One lexicon says that the word represents character traits of the noble-minded, the wise man who remains meek in the face of insults, the judge who is lenient in judgment when possible, and the king who is kind in his rule. It has the idea of laying down one's own pride and selfishness, being reasonable, being tolerant in a good way, being forbearing. You know, the word forbearing means to put up with. <laughs> it means to put up with others. To be gentle. You know, some have have tried to figure out a a translation for this, you know, gentle, kind, whatever. But the one I love the best is sweet reasonableness. That's That's the translation that I think captures the idea. Sweet reasonableness. Sweetness might make you be a little repulsed, especially, you know, if you're a man. Um, but I have a, a dear friend. He's a, he's an associate pastor and, um, he's this kind of big guy, you know, weightlifter guy. Um, he's the kind of dude that doesn't use the word sweet very often, you know. In fact, I don't think he'd ever use it, uh, in, in any real context. But one day he met with a man in our church, an older man, 
who is, you know, just like all those things I just read, who's, you know, kind and gentle and yielding and courteous and gracious and humble. And Tony texted me and he said, hey man, I just met with so-and-so. What a sweet man. And I knew exactly what Tony meant. You see, we want to be characterized by that. We want to be able to walk away from a conversation with anyone and they say, wow, that was a sweet person. Doesn't mean that you're not masculine. Doesn't mean anything like that. It just means that you have these character traits, the kind of character traits that the Lord Jesus had. And it's one of those things that if it's hard to define and nail down, um, it's even more rare in people these days. Even in the church. Look at the word uh, peaceable there. Or showing every consideration in the New American Standard. I think the ESV says peaceable. Um, it's kind of a synonym of that word. And so perhaps this characteristic of being gentle, humble, considerate, sweet, all these kind of ideas, uh, all of it is wrapped up in who the Lord Jesus Christ is. Because that word gentle is the very word that's used in Matthew eleven twenty nine, where Jesus says, Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So when we have this sweet nature among people, we show them Christ. And that's the idea, right? Notice what he says. Gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Showing. We demonstrate Christ when we act this way. So, that's what we're supposed to be. Submissive to the earthly rulers that God has placed over us. Eager to serve anyone and everyone. Self-controlled in our speech and our conduct, even in the midst of conflict. And overall, sweet-natured to everyone. Let's pray. Just kidding. (laughs) I mean, there's the rub, right? There's the rub. I mean, it's probably easy to be that way to one another here again. But the world out there is so often hostile to us that whether it's the guy who cuts you off on the freeway or the politician who drives you insane because they want to indoctrinate your children with some godless ideology and everything in between, this is difficult, isn't it? I mean, this pushes us to our limits. And so it's fitting then that right on the heels of the call to remember what you're supposed to be, Paul calls us to remember what we used to be. Here's the motivation for all of this. Remember what you used to be. That little word for in verse four, uh, verse three, I'm sorry, is because it, it provides the reasoning, the explanation, the motivation of, of why we're supposed to be all of these things. And here it is. It's because we were once just like everybody out there. That's why. You were just like that. And we so easily forget that. And the, the way Paul states this is emphatic. He, you can't really see it so much here, but he says, we ourselves. I mean, Paul is really just like heaping up uh, a terms here to kind of slap us across the face with this. We ourselves. Us. 
And this includes everyone, each and every one of us. Paul's including himself in this, regardless of our background, regardless uh, to what degree we've worked out our own depravity. Uh, Every single one of us fall underneath verse three. We were just like everybody else out there. And the descriptions, again, are all encompassing. Uh, You know, don't think that just because you haven't worked all of this out in your life doesn't mean that it's all in your heart apart from the grace of God. That's what we mean by total depravity, by the way. Total depravity doesn't mean that you're as bad as you could possibly be. Total depravity means that sin has corrupted every part of you. And so laden within you, in your thinking, your emotions, your will, is the ability to do any godless thing that any other godless sinner might do, given the right circumstances, the right bent, the right temperament. And that's what Paul's talking about. And here's what we were. He says we used to be foolish. Foolish. Ephesians 4.17 says that before Christ, we lived in the futility of our minds. We were darkened in our understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that was in us due to our hardness of heart. And 1 Corinthians 2 says that even if we were exposed to the Scriptures, they were foolishness to us because we didn't have the Spirit of God. Maybe you have a testimony like that. You heard the Gospel a bazillion times when you were a kid. You read the Bible and it just didn't make sense to you. Or you're one of those people that's like, oh yeah, yeah, nobody's perfect, okay. We need Jesus. And it just never hit you. Secondly, he says we were disobedient. Disobedient. That's the very same root desire for autonomy that we were saying characterizes the world. We want to be autonomous. We don't want anybody to rule over us. We're rebellious. We want to throw off all restraint. And if you think, well, I've never been like that. I've always, you know obeyed my boss and you know so forth well it's interesting to me that in one of the lists of vices that paul gives for unbelievers in romans chapter one as he's going down you know all these lists of of vices he says disobedient to parents (laughs) now i think each and every one of us could say yeah I, i probably messed up on that one right and if you can't please talk to me after the service My mom attends my church, so I can't get away with anything, you know. (laughs) Third, he says we were deceived. Deceived, going astray, wandering. uh, Going after our own ideas or the ideas of others. Ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's the idea. Trying to find a yes man for whatever we want. Deceived by whatever philosophy kind of fit us. That's what all the cults do, right? It's, it's so nice to have a religion where I just be a good person and feel good about myself and look down on everyone else. And when I get to heaven, I'm going to have a reward from God of eternal life because I'm so good. I mean, you put all false religion in that category to one degree or another. Even Eastern religions, you know, maybe it's not a reward from God, but melding into eternity or whatever. Uh, you know, at some point it's all about me just you know, checking the boxes because of my own goodness. But Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3, kind of shatters that, right? He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. 
And this is what Paul is talking about here in verse three, where he says enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Enslaved, we were dead in trespasses and sins. We were just working that out like the rest of the world. And that idea of enslavement means just that slaves of sin, slaves of our own lusts and desires. And, and by the way, if you think that, that, you know, you can get out of this one, notice he says various lusts and pleasures, various lusts. In other words, that our lusts and desires are of every kind, every flavor. In fact, James says that each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. We all have those unique desires to us. And sometimes we don't understand the desires of others. I always, I use this at, at youth camp when we were talking about this subject. And, um, I always think of kleptomania, which is just, it's just fascinating to me. People who steal, who aren't poor people, who need something. Not that that excuses stealing, but you kind of see their motivation for stealing something they need to eat. <laughs> but a kleptomaniac steals for the thrill of stealing. They usually are wealthy people who just like to go into a store and steal. I mean, I don't, I don't understand that in the slightest. That just sounds crazy to me. And maybe it does to you too, but maybe the kleptomaniac would look at me and say, well, yeah, I don't understand how you're lazy sometimes. I don't understand how, you know, we just fill in the blank. You see, it's easy for us to point fingers at other people. And especially in our society now, where there's all sorts of things out there that maybe we find repulsive or, or we can't resonate with, and it's easy for us to point fingers. But listen, what Paul is saying, hey, that's just another way that sin is worked out. And you have your own ways that sin is worked out. We're all sinners. And therefore, don't forget that you too were once enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. And then he says, you are wasting your life, basically, right? Wasting your life. Spending your life in malice and envy. Hateful. Hating one another. You know, James asks, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire to have, so you, and, and, you, and you do not have, so you murder. You covet, can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. In other words, we want what we want. Because we desire what we want, and when we don't get it, we're angry. And when we see somebody else getting what we want, we're envious. And that is the world out there. And that's exactly what you were and what I was. But, look at verse 4. But, like Martin Lloyd Jones says, thank God for the buts in the Bible. Amen. That little word, but, in verse 4, presents the contrast that makes an eternal difference for us. It signals the difference between spiritual death, spiritual life, eternal life, between enslavement to sin and freedom and enslavement to righteousness, between being a child of wrath and a child of God. And we could just keep going, keep going in this wonderful list of the contrast between those who have been bought with the precious blood of Christ and the world out there. And what made all the difference was nothing we did, not even in the slightest. And so finally here in the last couple minutes, I want us to see the third reminder of how to relate to the world. Not only must we remember what we are supposed to be, 
We used to be, but finally, remember what you are because of what God did for you. (laughs) Notice he says, but when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. That's what you are. You're saved. We just throw that term around. But you know what that term means? It means that you've been rescued from the wrath to come. You have been saved from God who will pour out His wrath upon all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. You've been saved from the wrath of God. And this grace and kindness and goodness of God appeared. And we we see that back in chapter 2, verse 11, where it says the grace of God has appeared. And then in in verse 13, that Christians are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. It's this idea of an epiphany, an appearing. And it's the idea that Christ has come, that God became man. He took upon flesh and died in the place of sinners like us and rose again that we might have life. That's the Gospel. So he's encapsulating all of that into this idea. But I think he's also saying something else. I think he's also saying that in each and every one of our lives there is a time when God's grace appeared to us. It invaded our lives. We were living like the rest of the world, like the walking dead out there, just living in our lusts and pleasures. And then boom! God did something in our lives. And He radically changed us. And we couldn't run anymore from our sin. And the weight of that guilt fell upon us and the forgiving grace of God was real to us. And the heavens seemed to open for us. And we realized, I'm saved. That's what we call being born again. And you know, there's different scenarios, ways, everyone has their testimony about that. But if that's never happened to you in in some kind of way where your heart just sings when I just said what I did, then talk to me after the service. And Paul is being emphatic here and intentionally ironic about the fact that we had nothing to do with this. Not even in the slightest. Because notice how he says it. He saved us not on the basis of which we have done in righteousness. In Greek, it's actually turned the other way. Greek, you can kind of, you know, put phrases where you want them and emphasize things. And so the way it actually reads in Greek is not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, he, but according to his own mercy, he saved us. So he's being emphatic here. He's saying nothing you did. In fact, this idea of deeds that we have done in righteousness is is a little snide. You could write in there so-called righteousness because we have none. He says it, it, it's nothing we have done in our so-called righteousness, but only by His grace and kindness. And listen, brothers and sisters, I know this is truth that we've heard many times, but Paul says remind them. And you know Why? Because here's the issue. The whole issue here is that when we're dealing with the world out there, we have that tendency to look down our nose at them. Those people are so wicked. They're not going to get away with that. You know, we have those kind of things, right? Well, guess what? He's saying, hey, look, you were just like them. 
and you're being self-righteous and you need to be cut back down to size and brought back to the foot of the cross to recognize that such were some of you. And yet, God was gracious to you. God was gracious. And when we act that way and we're self-righteous, we're, we're just like that Pharisee who prayed, God, I, I thank You that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And who went home justified? Not that Pharisee. You see, God took compassion on us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. And then Paul says that here's how he did it. Here's how he applied it. Through Christ appearing, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, this great compassion, this love that He had for us by the washing of that regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. And that's what we've got to get. We've got to understand that I didn't need to just be cleaned up a little bit. I don't need to become a better version of myself. Heaven forbid that. God wants to just bulldoze my heart. And create a new one. And nothing short of that will produce this kind of transformation. Nothing short of that is genuine biblical conversion. Nothing short of that is regeneration by the Spirit of God. A cleansed heart. And this was applied to us, notice, through our Lord Jesus who poured out upon us the grace of God richly in His sacrifice. That being justified by His grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. <laughs> That's what you are. You're saved. You're a child of God. You're an heir of eternal life. It's reserved for you in heaven. And you're being kept for the great day that you're going to embrace that fully. How glorious how glorious is that? You know, verse 8 is kind of the bookend to all of this. This is a trustworthy statement. What? This whole Gospel presentation. It's trustworthy. It's true. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God may be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. You see, it just brings us back to what we're supposed to be. Here's the motivation Here's what we're supposed to be. The only motivation for this sort of dynamic dealing with the world is to remember what we used to be and what we are now by God's grace. And this theme comes over and over and over in the Scriptures, doesn't it? Like I said, 1 Corinthians 6, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so the common theme that we see throughout Scripture and the only motivation that will help us relate to this hostile world around us is the title of the sermon this morning. But for the grace of God. So let's stop deluding ourselves of any notion of superiority to the world. Let's stop huddling up and retreating. And let's love them as people made in the image of God. And let's engage with them 
And let's seek to share this wonderful news of the Gospel with them. And let's believe that, you know what? God can do a miracle in their heart because He did a miracle in mine. Let's speak to them of Christ. And let's show them Christ by being submissive and servants and self-controlled and being sweet-natured to everyone. Only the Gospel can teach us that. Let's bow together. Father, this is a heavy reminder this morning. It cuts deep into my own heart. As I preach this, I'm preaching to myself. How easy is it for us to begin to see ourselves as something when really the only reason we are something is because of Your grace. It has nothing to do with any goodness or so-called righteousness of our own. Lord, I pray that this morning we would remember what we're supposed to be in light of what we used to be and what we are because of Your mercy and grace and loving kindness that was poured out upon us through the Lord Jesus and applied to our hearts by You, Holy Spirit. May we revel in that Gospel. May we preach it to ourselves daily. We ask all of this for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.